You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Prince Andrew is reportedly standing by his decision to do what turned out to be a widely criticized interview about his friendship with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. The prince sat down for a rare interview with Emily Maitlis for the Newsnight program at our partners, the BBC. The prince denied allegations he had sex with a 17-year-old girl who says she was trafficked by Epstein, and he discussed his friendship with Epstein, who died in August in a jail in New York City. Do I regret the fact that, that, that he has quite obviously conducted himself in a manner unbecoming? Yes. Unbecoming? He was a sex offender? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm being polite in the sense that he was a sex offender. But no. Um, uh, was I right in, in, in having him as a friend um, at the time? And bearing in mind this was some years before he was accused of being um, a, a sex offender. Um, uh, I, I don't think there was anything wrong then. The problem was the fact that once he had been convicted... You stayed with him. I stayed with him. And that's, that's, that's the bit that, 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 that um, as it were, I kick myself for on a daily basis, because it was not something that was becoming of a member of the royal family. Emily Maitlis joins us now in her first U.S. interview since her interview with Prince Andrew, which aired Saturday. Emily, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Morning. My pleasure. Uh, in, the, in the headlines in the British press, this interview is being called a train wreck and a catastrophic error. Why do you think the prince agreed to do it? Well, I think, to be fair, that what we got from Prince Andrew was authenticity and there are many figures that come onto the television or give interviews to the press who uh, tend to be PR'd to distraction. Everything is very carefully worded and there is no wriggle room with anything they say to ask anything else. And this was a different kind of interview. Uh, we saw an authentic side to the Duke of York. There were words that I'm guessing uh, he might want to have rephrased. You heard some of them in the clip that you just played. Uh, but this was essentially a man who was engaging with every single question that we put to him from Newsnight. And my sense of why he did it was because the question surrounding his friendship and indeed his own conduct, sexual conduct, had intensified following the death of Epstein in August. The prince's PR advisor reportedly quit over his decision to do this. And you say Prince Andrew sought approval from the Queen. Do we know whether the Queen was actually on board with this? What we do know is that he sought approval from higher up, shall we say. Now, he didn't say to me directly that that was the Queen, but it's hard to think of who else is higher up whose approval he would need. What I can tell you is that we filmed the interview in the quarters of Buckingham Palace that are very much the Queen's own residence, her entrance, the South Drawing Room, the Marble Hall, uh, where they do the investitures. If he hadn't had the approval of the palace, I'm imagining it would have been done in a sort of boardroom of a London hotel somewhere. Virginia Roberts Jufre, 
has accused the prince of having sex with her three times while she was underage. Um, he denies ever having, he denies, he says he doesn't recall ever meeting her. Let's listen to exactly what he said. I have no recollection of ever meeting this lady. None whatsoever. You don't remember meeting her? No. She says she met you in 2001. She dined with you. She danced with you. You bought her drinks. You were in Tramp nightclub in London. And she went on to have sex with you in a house in Belgravia belonging to Gerlaine Maxwell. Didn't happen. She was very specific about that night. Mm -hmm. She described dancing with you no. and you profusely sweating <laughs> and that she went on to have bath, there's a, there's possibly... A, there's a slight problem with, 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 with the sweating um, because uh, I, I have a peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat um, or I didn't sweat at the time. And that was... Oh, was she? Yes. I didn't sweat at the time because... I um, ha had suffered what I would describe as an overdose of adrenaline in the Falklands War when I was shot at, uh, and I simply, it, it, was, it, was, it was almost impossible for me to, to, to sweat. Emily, how is that explanation being received? Well, um, with a certain amount of interest, <laughs> perhaps incredulity in some yeah. quarters, I think we could say there was no shortage of detail in the prince's answers. I mean, I think that's what comes forward. We were hearing things for the very first time. I don't know of that medical condition. I haven't, you know, I don't have a medical background. I haven't researched into it. But certainly from Prince Andrew's perspective, he was telling us things that he hoped would make sense of what we'd seen, of what we'd heard, of the allegations. Um, a, a lawyer for Epstein's victims uh, is calling for the prince to answer questions under oath uh, in the U.S. Do you think it's likely that he could get drawn into a criminal investigation? I did put to him, I asked him if he'd be willing um, to answer questions under oath, and he said he'd be willing to do what anyone else should do. He would take, I think his words were very serious, legal advice on it, and it wasn't something he'd avoid if he had to do it. All right, Emily Maitlis, thank you very much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. This week, I'm rejoined by Sam McAllister, who secured that catastrophic interview with Prince Andrew. And in this episode, we get into the detail about what Prince Andrew said and did, the psychology and the analysis of his behaviour and language, as well as what he should have done in this interview. This BBC interview changed Prince Andrew's life forever, and it also changed Sam's life forever. So let's jump back into this searingly honest and authentic interview with Sam McAllister. Really extraordinary. As you were talking through the days, I did have Craig David seven days. It was the six days that you secured it. But to turn that around in such a, a short period of time, and, and yes, I mean, it is an incredibly significant piece of history, actually, 45 minutes that, you know, I can't emphasize it enough, changed everything. And Emily's, I will call it a forensic deconstruction, you know, of challenging him in the right places. 
which needed to be done. But talk a little bit about the setup. So when the actual day draws near and when you go into Buckingham Palace and, and he walks in, can you say a little bit about that and how he approached people, the sound engineers, lighting, etc.? Can you say a little bit about the behind the scenes and then we'll get to the interview? Of course. I mean, you just don't know when an interview is going to turn up. So as the producer, you usually turn up, you know, wildly early. Uh, Stuart was already there, of course, as he's the big honcho producer at this stage. And all the machinations of television, just like the detritus, the cables, the lighting, the sound, the cameras, there's so much that comes with it in terms of equipment. So that takes a couple of hours to set up before the interview even starts. So by the time I arrived maybe about 45 minutes before it started or something like that. All of that is in motion. I've never been inside a room like that in my life, in a palace, a huge states-like room with all of the faded grandeur that you'd expect of the British monarchy. You know, so you're taking it in. It's a, it's kind of an assault on your senses and you're obviously extremely nervous. It's high stakes. Emily arrives much later because rightly, as you'll understand, you wait for the presenter to turn up until just before, because you don't want them to basically be chit-chatting with the interviewee. It makes it more difficult for them and, and for the interviewee. And Prince Andrew just walks into the room randomly. So there I am, minding my own business, uh, so to speak. And there he is. Oh, hello, how are you? And then it could have been one minute. It could have been 10 minutes. I'm unsure. But I then spend a period of time just, you know, sharing small talk with, with Prince Andrew the way you do. So we chatted about the weather, of course, being British. It was torrential rain that day in my defence. So it was a, a good thing to talk about. And then we talked about uh, the room. I asked some questions about it. He gave me the name, which escapes me now, something like the South Drawing Room. I didn't know where it was. And then I asked him about what it's usually used for. And he was kind enough to reveal that that evening, in fact, it was going to be used for Cinema Club. So once we cleared away the ridiculous detritus of television, they were going to be watching Judy with Rene Zellweger. Now, I knew he was a man who liked uh, mechanics and those kinds of things. So I asked him how it was going to be screened. And he showed me the projector. He climbed up and opened some door. And out comes this projector that looks like it's 300 years old that's going to be used later that evening. He then asked me whether I've seen the film. We have a chat about Rene Zellweger. And then some other bits of chit chat before he then goes and has a chat. I think with one member of crew mentioned that he'd uh, said something about sound levels or microphones, giving his no doubt extensive <laughs> knowledge of uh, working in television <laughs> to, the, to the people around him. But it was a nice thought. You know, he was he was being congenial. So obviously for him, just a usual thing to do. But for us chatting with him and trying to get the atmosphere right for that most extraordinary of moments. So quite unsettling to have that conversation just on your own, wondering if he's going to just go, actually, I've changed my mind, which is what I assumed would happen at some stage that day. And then Emily arrives, um, ready to go about 10 minutes beforehand, and they sit down in those seats and we wait for the cameras to roll. Yes. And I would imagine that that was quite hard, him just walking in. I mean, I like to be in my headspace when I'm doing something big and get things organised and, and feel ready before the event happens. So it could have 
thrown you off kilter, but it sounds like he enjoyed going around chatting to to you and to, to some of the others and dispensing his vast knowledge on uh, on mics and sound levels, as you say. The mansplain is, and the entitlement is off the scale. So, I mean, Emily sits down, he sits down, and you're listening, I presume. You're not see. you said that you weren't watching. So like me, I'm listening to everything audio. And actually you can pick up so much more when you're listening and not watching. So well, when I, was, I was listening in the sense that I couldn't see his face. So I heard his words, but I couldn't see the facial expressions because I was sitting behind him against the wall. And all I can see is his body language and the movements of his foot. But no, I didn't have any head device or anything. But in a sense, I had the audio version of the interview because when I saw it on the Saturday, I'd never seen the facial expressions before. So it was like a completely different experience seeing, you know, the physical facial expressions. So I kind of had the audio experience, but with the vista in front of me. Amazing. I mean, that's that's how I experienced it. You know, the BBC shared it with me and I said what I heard and what I understood and things like the lack of empathy. And But then when you put the two things together and you see different things, what, what were the standout things for you when you're listening and when you're in that room, can you just explain how you reacted to to what you were hearing and what stood out to you the most at that time? There's something that we usually call the briefing call when you're a producer. And how it goes is usually like this, Laura. You speak to the person. The presenter has no involvement. The person is like the most amazing interviewee ever. They tell you all these amazing stuff. They're really charismatic. They're really frank. The cameras go on. And lo and behold, they give you 1%. They don't do the job. They change their mind even. And then you look like an idiot to your presenter. So my expectation was that the conversation that we'd had on the Monday where he was frank, open, unguarded, unrestrained, by the time we got on camera, I was expecting that he would have cleaned up his act in a sense. We would have got, you know, a very conservative version of the frankness that he'd shown us in the negotiation. So what was astonishing for me, and you have to concentrate quite carefully physically, because I'm the passive producer in the room at that moment. You know, Jake, who's there, he's kind of like been working on the questions. Stuart's looking after the whole team. I'm basically sitting there passively. My role has been done. And sitting there, not reacting to those answers. The first answer was probably the best one he gave in terms of protecting himself. Because if you watch the interview again, and, I, and now, of course, you've, you've heard it and seen it several times, I'm sure, each answer, it's box office. And then you think, well, that must be it now. I mean, he's not. And then there's another one. And then another one. And in your brain, you're working as I was as a journalist, but also as an ex-criminal barrister. And in my head, I'm just notching up. Journalistically, this is dynamite. But thinking of a prosecutor, a theoretical prosecutor watching this, this is dynamite too, because he just exposes himself over and over again to completely disprovable assertions that are easy to refute and to show that they're either incorrect at best or lies at worst. So the two parts of my brain are both clocking up constantly the reverberations and the ramifications for him of what he's saying and doing. And that dualistic nature, if you like, of my background meant that there was not a second in that interview where my heart was not pounding with the significance of what we had and the significance of what this meant for him, that clearly he did not have a clue 
of the legal ramifications of what he was saying. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It was astounding, actually. He didn't distance himself from Epstein. He didn't condone his behavior. He was a registered sex offender. Just things that every time I expected to hear the right thing. And, and let's face it, Emily gave him multiple opportunities to say the right thing. And it seemed very fair, actually, from the, from the interview perspective, it was handled very fairly. But he just kept snatching what I call defeat from the jaws of victory at every opportunity. And, and that takes a lot for someone to do that each time. But you mentioned two standout things and you call one the, the chapter no sweat. And yes, that was quite staggering for him to say, well, he didn't sweat at the time. And Pizza Express at, at Woking, he was at a, a birthday party, so it couldn't have been him, although that was in the day. And no one can, of course, place him there. All things that you could check, as you said. But one of the things that also stood out to me it was regarding him saying that he flew all the way to New York to see Epstein to break up with him when he'd already said that they weren't really friends, but yet he had flown all the way over there. And that picture in the park that we all saw was him breaking up with Epstein, a registered sex offender. I mean, that was just astounding, again, that as those words were leaving his mouth, that he thought that that would make sense to people. Completely. And I think the, the bit that he then does, which adds an extra kind of like fuel to the fire of the terribleness of that answer, is he justifies it by saying that he did it because he was basically a man of honour and that the honourable thing to do is to go when you are friends with a convicted sex offender, to go and face-to-face -face end the friendship. Well, I can be honest with you, I've ended, you know, actual personal relationships with people that I was dating, you know, in with less honour, as he would call it, uh, than he did. Quite extraordinary. And I think that the misunderstanding about, the, going back to that word delusion again, about the answers, misunderstanding the context, misunderstanding how bad they feel, because when it comes down to it, there were two things he should have done in that interview. And this interview has become you know, a PR person's dream and nightmare. It's used as an example of what not to do. The only two things he had to do, Laura, as you've rightly identified just now, were say sorry. He can't accept responsibility because obviously he doesn't want to do that, but say he's so sorry about what happened to the victims. It's horrific. It's terrible. He's so sorry that they have suffered. 
And then all he needs to do is to regret the friendship and say, I wish I'd never met him. But he couldn't do that. He just made the friendship bigger with every answer. He was a sophisticated man. He let him stay at his house for free. He was so well connected. He was he was delightful. You know, each answer was just a cataclysmic response to what should have been a moment of reflection, apology, regret, and of course, just being honest about his own inadequacies. And you're absolutely right. Emily is very generous. She's so methodical, so brilliant, so all the way through. And then at the end, she gives him one more chance just to do the basic thing he should have done. And she says, is there anything else you want to say? Brackets, apologize, regret, anything? And he says, no. And that level of misunderstanding about the implications of the actions he's accused of personally but the implications of the actions of Epstein and how those answers would look to an ordinary person. It's just such a complete diametric opposition in what you would think if you were watching that in comparison to clearly what he thought were good, important answers that absolved him and cleared his name. And that's a real disconnect that is completely throughout the entire interview writ large in every single response. It was a complete disconnect, as you say. But what was instructive about it was it just showed how self-absorbed he was, that he could only locate himself in those interactions, that he was the honourable man breaking up with the sex offender because it was what Epstein brought to him. Everything revolved around him, even in those answers. Did he regret the relationship? Well, no, because of what it brought me, effectively, was what he was saying. I mean, just that level of self-absorption and narcissism to not see very clearly that, yes, his only role really in that interview was to distance, apologise and show some level of compassion towards the women. And he just could not do it. And I really just felt, when we talked about it on Real Crime Profile, I said Emily just gave him every opportunity. And each time I was willing him, I don't know how you all were in the room, but I was willing him to say the right thing and to do the right thing. And it was just so left of centre. Um, and everybody, of course, reacted to it. But I would imagine in that room, you could hear a, a, a pin drop. And Emily kept her composure so well not to show just absolute disbelief in what she's hearing or utter disgust. She kept herself well comported, actually, in, in that situation. Can't have been easy. She was phenomenal. And I, I have to say, one of the things we were hugely helped by, actually, was that we'd done the negotiation. And obviously not to the extent um, that you hear uh, in the interview, but he'd alluded to or articulated some of the things that he then said on camera, which, as I say, I never thought would make it to air. But at least Emily had heard some of it already. And I think that was probably helpful because if you had just been in 45 minutes of this relentless, you know, narcissism, as you've said, oh, no, no, he thinks he's got killer answers, right? So you say, oh, well, you had Ghislaine Maxwell, you know, and she was you know, really problematic and she was with your daughter. Oh, no, no. It, went, but it, was a, it was a shooting weekend, actually. Correcting the things that are the least important and not correcting the things that are the most important, a common flaw when people are being accused of things, as you know better than anybody, but concentrating every time on the least important element and missing the most important element and it's credit to Emily's brilliance that you cannot accept once where she doesn't lose her composure, but she reacts to something he says. That period of composure that she showed is 
unbelievable and you know full credit to her and, and her brilliance and professionalism because I was looking at the floor I was making eye contact with no one I was looking at the floor trying not to make eye contact with anybody that I'd already worked with whether it was Amanda Thirsk or the lovely Ekri his kind of executive assistant next to me or members of the Newsnight crew because just one connection of eyes one eye roll one accidental smirk one getting the giggles which was conceivable even though we were professionals we would have been done for. So I had to concentrate quite hard um, in my own tiny way in that room on not giving away anything in my face or facial movements to the people around me who would have been watching me too. Yeah, so difficult. And that is to her skill as an interviewer, but to hold him to account in a respectful way of saying, I, I believe she said something like, well, you know, I need to ask you again about that. He was a registered sex offender. And so again, just plainly presenting the facts and giving him in that fact the opportunity to then say that he was horrified and so on, but it, it never happened. So what happened to, in terms of that interview wrapping and what was the impact in terms of you personally as, as well as professionally of, of that interview airing? What was the consequence of it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you're in the room and you hear those answers, you know how profoundly important that interview is, but you're not sure it's going to make to air, right? Surely someone's going to get rid of that. There's going to be a call from one important man, forgive me, to another important man, and it's going to be got rid of, or some lawyers are going to get rid of it. So at the end of the interview, I just I just want to get out of there. But as my eyes lift, I'm sitting next to this lovely woman, the Ekery, who was very charming to me when I arrived, offered me a martini, which I, I turned down, which is quite something I'd say, because I love a martini, and in Buckingham Palace. And I didn't really know what to say, because I like to say something sincere. I'm never fake, for better or worse. So I formulated my words quite carefully and slightly high-pitched, as we often go when we're a bit nervous. And I said to her, so how do you think it went? And she said, wasn't he marvellous? And in all sincerity, I replied, yes, yes, he was. And as I lifted my eyes, Laura, I saw this extraordinary space between the two camps. Prince Andrew looking pleased as punch, like he's done a great interview. He's offering Emily and the team a, a tour of the palace, which I, I declined because I couldn't face the question he would inevitably ask of me, how do you think it went? And on the other side, the team, who look a bit ashen, to be honest, because what a responsibility. What has just happened? And remember, most of them were not in the negotiation. They had no clue what had been said to myself, Emily and Stuart. So they're hearing it for the first time in Buckingham Palace from the mouth of a member of the royal family. And so out of there, we need to get. So I leave with Jake and Stuart. Jake's holding these tiny little pieces of tech that hold this entire conversation on it. We go back to the office and then it's a waiting game for me because I'm not in the edit. Stuart's doing that. Uh, I think Jake was in there. Others were involved at that stage. We've gone from two or three people knowing about it to five to 10. You know, we have to get it to air without it being got rid of. And it's just a whirlwind because you do it on the Thursday, which was my day off. I usually work Monday to Wednesday. They dropped a clip saying that it was going to be happening on the Friday. And then my phone started going wild because obviously anyone who knew me in the business assumed that I'd been part of, of that deal. And then it runs on the Saturday. And then on Sunday, I spend the day in my house with the lights off. I don't even leave the house because my phone is going mental. 
my pictures in the papers. They found me. It was a very dodgy picture on LinkedIn. There we are. And, you know, my name is suddenly a, a name. Um, 15 for 15 seconds, of course, I'm not over egging my, my role or my importance. But you've gone from being an anonymous person who does your job uh, that you enjoy and your reward is excellence or the admiration of your peers to somebody who is in the public eye. And that change in my life was obviously a, a big change for me. So it afforded me opportunities. Um, it afforded sometimes difficulties, harder to do my job in some ways because of being linked to that interview that had been so cataclysmic for him. But by the Wednesday, so just nine short days after that negotiation, he's withdrawn from public office. And I'm sitting on my sofa, my company called Argos, which for people who don't know, sofas here in the UK is like a very basic sofa that I've spent about 10 years sitting on. You know, it's got a print of me in it somewhere, watching the television with my kid on the other sofa, probably watching YouTube, responsible parenting. And it drops on the television that he stepped back from public life. I think we were eating spaghetti bolognese at the time. I didn't finish mine because it was just overwhelming. It was overwhelming. Overwhelming in terms of, if you like, pride in the fact that there had been accountability in the court of public opinion and the court of journalism for his actions that he was accused of or whatever he had or hadn't done. There was an accountability here. And then pride in our journalism and Emily's hard work and Stuart and everyone on the team and what they'd done. But it was quite personally overwhelming. You know, you're not rational in that second. And I did feel something I never fear would feel, which was fear. I definitely felt fearful that day. And it was an extraordinary mix of emotions and feelings. And of course, my life and uh, his life were, were never the same again after that day. What were you fearful of, Sam? It doesn't sound rational, does it? But I, I suppose I'm a tiny little individual a single mom bringing up a kid on my own. You know, I don't have a very high paid job or anything. I, I don't have power. I, I don't mix in those circles. And suddenly I'm part of a piece of work that has brought down a member of the royal family with very powerful friends and, you know, effectively the establishment. So the, the schism between me, teeny tiny person, and the state, the royalty, the establishment, all of those things, in that moment, rational or irrational, that felt frightening. That did feel frightening. What, what might happen to me? Would my career be ended? Would they make allegations about things I'd said? Would I basically have some writ landing where I never got to work again? Would my reputation be trashed? Uh, would I be physically threatened? Would Twitter start kicking into action and all the royalists and monarchists start, you know, giving me death threats? I, I didn't know. It, it felt I felt exposed in a way I never had in my career, for better or worse. And so at least for 24 hours or so, I was a, I was somewhat fearful, yes. Yes, I can imagine so. And we have seen things play out on TV with, you know, the establishment, the man behind the curtain, the things that... So it's not irrational. I just wondered whether you could pinpoint, given that it must have been such a roller coaster of so many emotions in such a short space of time that you're dealing with and being someone who's been behind the camera to them being named and being exposed in that way must have felt uncomfortable. So I, I do have empathy for that. 
I think the contribution is an incredible one and kudos to you. So I want to pay respect to you and to the team because that level of accountability, we've never seen that before. And that was all brought about by you following your nose and being honest and authentic in those moments, which is why he spoke out in the first place. But it did also lead to Ghislaine Maxwell being arrested. And I do think that's an important contribution that may not have happened because she disappeared. And therefore, there has been a number of what, what I would say very positive consequences as a result of you following your nose and, and getting that interview. And that's all kudos to you. So congratulations. I really appreciate that. As you say, obviously, it's a team and other people did some wonderful things, but 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 for those initial conversations and interactions, that wouldn't have happened. And it does, obviously, it does give you comfort that journalism, when it is at its best, can do something profound, which is hold someone accountable for something that they would not have had any level of accountability for otherwise. And so the consequences that flowed, the positive ones that you've described, whether it was stoking back up the interest in, you know, pursuing Ghislaine Maxwell, the FBI getting more involved, the settlement, though we don't know exactly what it was, whatever those consequences were, in some way they they came from his terrible answers in that extraordinary interview. And that's obviously a legacy of the journalism done by the team and by Emily that um, we are, are proud of, of course. Absolutely. And it was egregious listening to him. And I think most law enforcement professionals or most people felt that in listening. And we wouldn't have had that experience if it, if it weren't for that interview. Now, tell me, Sam, will the uh, picture that you took, the selfie in, the, in Buckingham Palace in the bathroom, will we ever see that? Is that ever going to come to light? <laughs> well, my editor was like, you must take that out because it makes you look bad. And I'm like, no, it makes me look great because nine out of 10 normal people, when left alone in the Queen's waiting room, it was actually in Buckingham Palace, although I usually do loo selfies, you're absolutely correct, with a camera phone, which hadn't been taken away from you, Oh, come on. I mean, you know, I'm only human. So I may or may not, I'll send them to you later, obviously, you know, for public, for private consumption, but I may or may not have taken a few selfies of myself in the gilt mirror. A uh, picture of the queen, uh, I think was in there somewhere that may or may not have accidentally got into my, into my camera. So that was one of those human moments where even the most professional of us are not obviously kind of like separate from the fact that this is an extraordinary place and an extraordinary moment in your professional career um and yeah my mum loved seeing those photos so I'm always thinking of my mum I bet she did that would be the first thing my mother would have asked me as well so those moments of being human really important anything else you want to add Sam and well firstly we should say that the the book is being turned into a movie right which is incredible it's insane I mean I'd never written a book before I'd only written legal opinions and I can tell you they weren't much fun to to read so I am quite lucky that I throw myself in foolishly or courageously or a bit of both to projects. So the book, you know, I was lucky enough to get commissioned to write this book. Um, some people seem to have enjoyed it, which is great. And then it's been optioned, as you say, into, into an actual movie, which fingers crossed, because often these things don't come to air, but so far so good. I've got an incredible screenwriter. It's uh, Peter Moffat, who did Silk. Amazing criminal justice and latterly uh, your honor with Brian Cranston so he's been working with me this year I had to keep it all top secret but it's been amazing working with him and with the incredible team who've been behind this and so you know fingers crossed it's an extraordinary tale 
And obviously there's a lot of interest in royal stories and my part, of course, only I can tell. So it's uh, it's a real, a real mind blowing idea that you've written a book and then you're going to be played by an actress in a film written by Peter Moffat, who's won more awards than I've had hot dinners. So, yes, uh, I hope you'll go and see it, Laura, if it, if it happens. I will be queuing up to, yeah, absolutely. Who's going to play you, Sam? What would, what, who would be the ideal person? <laughs> it's such a weird, because it's like a dinner, not that I go to dinner parties, but it's a game, isn't it? Who would play me? So uh, the interviews I've done here, I've always asked the interviewer. I've turned it back on them. So Laura, who should play me? Look, if my co-host Lisa Zambetti from Real Crime Profile was sat here, she'd probably say someone like Meryl Streep or well, I shouldn't second guess her, but that's who she'd probably peg for you. And I mean, I'd be pretty happy with Meryl Streep. Uh, that's probably where I would go, just looking at your hair and just, you know, the gravitas similar, as well. You've got a similar profile as well. Well, Meryl, if you're watching or listening, you know, obviously fantastic. Well, I think they will be making some announcements on that front over the next few months, but it's obviously a surreal thing waiting to hear who will play you. I mean, it's bonkers. At some stage, if it happens, I'll be on a set with an actress playing me all because I decided to leave the BBC to write a book about my small part in this extraordinary tale. So I feel hugely lucky and hugely pleased that I made the decision to leave the BBC that I did. I'm a very, very lucky, lucky woman. Absolutely. Or maybe I'd go Renee Zellweger. I mean, Meryl might be a little bit older, but maybe Renee. I or... didn't want to say Laura, but I think it's, I think we might be about, we might be about 25 years apart, but it's okay. I'm going to let it go. Renee's closer, definitely. But you know what can be done with with makeup these days? You know, it's incredible. <laughs> but yes, I mean, you know, age-wise, you would definitely want someone younger. And I know Lisa would probably have a million actors in mind. But yeah, I really hope that the, the movie happens. You know, it's it's an incredible, incredible thing that you've done. What's your top tip for negotiating? That's what I'm going to end on. I've kept you for more time and I could speak to you for days. But give us a top tip for negotiating or top tip to share with my lovely listeners. Absolutely. The number one tip is it's not about you. Most people would go into a negotiation looking for a win. They want to like end it. They want to get to their end. They know what they want. That's simple. That's an absolute, the most basic, easy thing to know what you want. It's not about you. Put yourself in the shoes of the person. Think about what it is that they're going to dislike about your proposition. Think about it on the human level, what it is that you need to connect with, research them. Don't be lazy let them speak and actually listen rather than waiting to make your point. And most important of all, don't be an a-hole. Because when you're negotiating, you leave an impression. And if you lose and you don't get it, if you behaved well and you treated them with respect, turned up on time, got their name right, behaved properly and listened to their concerns, then maybe in the future, just like with this tale, there might be an opportunity that you didn't realize would happen. So behave well and don't think about yourself and don't try and win because it's not about winning. It's about getting to the end with mutual respect. Absolutely. And we've got to the end and I'm going to hold you to who would play you? I need to know your answer. Who would you like to play you? I'm circling back to the question. Okay. If, it's, if, it's, if it was a Hollywood star, which it, it won't be, it'll be a British actress. If it was a Hollywood star, then I'm just going to go in on Charlize Theron because I think she's amazing nice. and she has played nice. a single mom in a in a film where she you know looked sort of like normal and if it were a british actress um an actress that I really admire here in the uk is uh, Maxine Peake who's done a lot of uh, legal dramas and she's she's kind of the one you're rooting for so whoever it is I just want you to be rooting for me Laura that's the kind of actress I want 
Absolutely. Well, that's a good point to end on. So thank you so much, Sam. You've been very generous with your time. I really appreciate you and value you. And thank you for talking to me on Crime Analyst. An absolute pleasure, Laura. Take care. I'm jumping back in here to wrap the episode. There have been numerous positive consequences following the interview, including Virginia Dufresne holding Prince Andrew accountable in a civil court. This was his statement announcing the settlement. Virginia Dufresne and Prince Andrew have reached an out-of-court settlement. The parties will file a stipulated dismissal upon Miss Dufresne's receipt of settlement. Prince Andrew intends to make a substantial donation to Miss Dufresne's charity in support of victims' rights. Prince Andrew has never intended to malign Miss Dufresne's character. He accepts that she has suffered both as an established victim of abuse and as a result of unfair public attacks. It is known that Jeffrey Epstein trafficked countless young girls over many years. Prince Andrew regrets his association with Epstein and commends the bravery of Miss Dufresne and other survivors in standing up for themselves and others. He pledges to demonstrate his regret for his association with Epstein by supporting the fight against the evils of sex trafficking and supporting its victims. Now, what's remarkable to me is that although the settlement is not an admission of wrongdoing, Prince Andrew does not repeat his repeated insistence that he did nothing wrong. And just to correct the narrative earlier, in the case, he allowed his lawyers to accuse Virginia Dufresne of initiating, and I quote, a baseless lawsuit to achieve another payday at his expense. Virginia was accused of making money from her Epstein allegations by launching what his lawyers called a frivolous lawsuit against the prince. But in this statement, he accepts that Virginia was a victim of abuse and her character cannot be questioned. And let's not forget what he told Emily Maitlis on public record for the world to witness, that he had never met Virginia and he would cooperate with any investigation and lawsuit and he would not avoid it. So there's that. And it speaks volumes. So Ghislaine Maxwell is now in prison, which is also a positive outcome. But I have to say, what about all the men she trafficked the girls to? What about them? The silence is deafening. Perhaps that's for a discussion another time. So go listen to Sam's book, Scoops, or buy a copy. It really is a fascinating read. And watch out for the movie. And if you enjoyed these episodes, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood.
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.